Chapter Eighteen of the Biography of a Prairie Girl by Eleanor Gates. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Little Teacher. With one of the biggest brother's checked jumpers pinned across her breast, and with suds spattered up her bare arms to her shoulders, the little girl was valiantly attacking the weekly wash. A clothes basket at her feet was piled with white garments awaiting the bluing. The tub was full of colored things that were receiving a second rub. Out of doors, on a line stretched between the corner of the kitchen and the high seat of the big farm wagon, flapped the drying sheets and pillowcases. Breakfast was cleared away, the beds were made, the sitting room was tidied, and it was not eight o'clock, yet she was nearly done. And while she worked steadily to finish, the boiler on the stove behind her kept time with its clanking cover to the grating tune of her washboard. The little girl no longer had to make use of the three-legged milking stool in order to reach the tub. Instead, she stood square on the floor, for she was tall for her scant fifteen years, having grown so rapidly in the last twelve months that she now came up to the youngest brother's chin and required fully ten yards of cloth for a dress. But she still wore her hair down her back, and, as she bobbed over the clothes to give them their added drubbing, shiny strands shook themselves loose from their curly, captive neighbors and waved damply against her flushed cheeks, till she looked like a gay yellow dandelion asway in a gusty wind. When the last red shirt was wrung from the water, she began to dip bucketfuls and empty them on the sloping side at the further side of the storm cellar, singing blithely as she hurried back and forth. She was so intent on her carrying that she did not see a horseman who was turning in at the ash lane, his face eagerly lifted to the windows of the farmhouse. Even when, having tied his mount at the block in front, he rapped on the sitting-room door, she did not hear him. Finally, when receiving no answer, he walked around the corner to the entry, she stepped out with her last pail and came face to face with him. Joy leaped into his eyes as he dropped his whip and lifted his hat. Something more than surprise lighted hers as she let her suds fall and spill over the stone step. Then, stammering a welcome, she surrendered her hands to the glad grasp of the colonel's son. "'My, it's good to see you!' he cried, looking at her with the old frankness. He stepped back a little to measure her from top to toe. "'And haven't you shot up?' "'Like a ragweed,' she laughed, taking him into the kitchen, where she brought him a chair from the sitting-room. "'You're a full-fledged housekeeper, too,' he declared. "'How do you like the change from herding?' "'Oh, I haven't herded much for a long while,' she replied proudly, "'as she refilled her tub from a barrel in the corner "'that had been drawn by the biggest brother. "'I helped Mother in the house all last summer.' "'She grew sober suddenly, and the Colonel's son hastened to change the subject. "'You're looking awfully well,' he assured her. "'I've worn off some of my tan,' she explained. "'Well, that's partly it,' he said, and his glance was boyishly eloquent. She fell to rubbing again, and he watched her admiringly, noticing how trim was her black dress and how spotless were the lace at her throat and the ribbon that bound back her hair. "'I don't believe you can guess where I'm started for,' he said, after a moment of silence. She straightened up to rest her back and looked out through an open window. "'I thought you were just coming here.' "'No.' He watched her for a sign of pleased astonishment when he continued. "'I'm on my way to St. Paul.' She turned swiftly, her eyes wide open. "'College?' she questioned in a low, strained voice. "'Nearly that. I shall prepare for West Point. The bishop has chosen a school for me.' Her eyes went back to the window, but a mist was over them now, and she could not see the square of cottonwoods and barley framed by the sash. "'I left the Wyoming Post a week ago,' he went on. "'Father's orderly brought my trunk to Chamberlain, and I rode down from there to the reservation, and then came here. I shall take the train at the station. It's changed to morning time, I believe, and goes by about ten-thirty. She did not seem to hear him. Her face was still turned away, and she was murmuring to herself. The bishop, she repeated. The bishop. 
All at once she ran out of the room. When she returned, she held a tin spice box in her hand. She took a letter from it and held it toward the colonel's son. Read this, she said. It's from the bishop to mother. He spread out the written sheet, which was dated two years back, and read it aloud. Whenever that spirited little maid of yours is ready to take up the studies she cannot enjoy where you are, send her to me. I will get her ready for the college she dreams about, and, if God takes you from her soon, as you fear, and as I pray not, though his will be done, I will watch over her like a father. When he finished, he looked up at her, his face fairly sparkling. Of course you'll go, he said. No, she answered sadly, shaking her head. I can't go. I haven't any money. The boys have just bought some land that joins ours. If I left, they'd have to pay my expenses and then hire someone to take my place, so they wouldn't be able to pay for the land. I shall have to wait till I can earn something for myself. It's a shame, declared the colonel's son, because if you work here, how can you earn anything? She shook her head again. I don't know. Only I shall go some day. I'm, I'm glad you're going, though. But it's been more your hope than mine. I'm sorry it isn't different, that we aren't just changed round. I don't care to study much anyway. I want to be a soldier like father. I don't see why I should study so much for that. I've been everywhere with him after Indians. I wish I could go on at it without stopping to study. I don't know what I want to be. I only know that I love to read and study. If I could read and study, I wouldn't mind living on the plains. You wouldn't, cried the colonel's son. Well, maybe I shall always have to live here, and He stopped in confusion and got up hastily, hat in hand. Goodbye, he said. He stepped toward her, his head lowered bashfully. She wiped her hands on her jumper. Do you have to go? she asked. Can't you stay and have dinner? My brothers would love to see you, and I'd cook you something nice. No, he replied, a little agitated. I won't more than catch my train. He shook her hands and started out. At the door he glanced back and was startled at her colorless face. What is it? he pleaded, coming back to her side. She sat down on the bench by the window, the jumper crushed in her fingers. Oh, I want to go, I want to go, she said, her voice deep with pain and longing. I'm lonesome here. I miss Mother terribly. I'm always listening for her. I'm always getting up and going into the next room as if she were there. And then I remember... She broke down and wept, all her pride gone. Don't, don't, whispered the colonel's son tenderly. It'll all come out right. Next year, when I'm on my way back, I'll stop and we'll talk it over again. That won't be long. Maybe something will turn up, too, between now and then. Maybe, she said hopelessly, but she checked her tears and rose to follow him out. At the mounting block they shook hands again. Then he sprang into the saddle and galloped through the yard toward the north. A year isn't long, she whispered to herself as she watched him disappear in the corn, and she went bravely back to her tub. A month went by, a month of dull routine that was enlivened only by harvesters. Day after day she plodded through the heavy program of breakfast, dinner, supper, bed-making, sweeping, and the care of the chickens and pigs. Her calendar was the added duties that each morning entailed of washing, ironing, mending, scrubbing, and baking. The promise of the colonel's son came to cheer her sometimes, but it was a peep into the tin spice box each evening that heartened her the most. For to her, the bishop's letter was a single link between the prairie and the long-for campus. Then one afternoon, as she sat churning, the dasher in one hand, and the other a spoon that busily returned the cream frothing from the hole at the cover, there came a second tap at the front door. This time she heard and ran through the sitting room, still grasping the spoon, to invite the new settler to enter. He tramped in with a jocund greeting sat down on the kitchen floor in a path of sunlight, and leaned against the wall, smoking. "'Go right on, go right on,' he urged. "'Like to see you trouncing the cream, and what I've got to say won't sour it.' She went on with her butter-making, the tall wooden vessel firmly held between her feet. "'Had a meeting of the school committee yesterday,' he began, puffing at his pipe slowly. 
We talked over hunting up another teacher to take the place of the one the Dutchman hired. She isn't coming? asked the little girl. No, she isn't coming. She's going to take a school near Sioux Falls, he answered crossly. I'm tired of these teachers that pretend to the little schools away off nowhere that they're ready to take them, when all the while they've got their eyes peeled for a school near town. So I propose to the committee that we get someone around here to take the school, someone that won't fail us and that can handle my young ones, the two little chaps from West Fork, and one or two of the Dutchmans. That's about all the scholars there will be this term. What do you think about it? I, I should think it would be all right, she faltered, churning so hard that the froth climbed up the dasher, carrying pieces of fresh butter with it and leaving them midway on the handle. I should think so, too, said the new settler, and that's about the way we fixed it up. And, well, we thought we'd offer it to you. She got up, her color coming and going swiftly and stood before him. To me, she asked, do you mean it? He assented by a nod. Oh, it's too good to be true, she went on. I can hardly believe it. She began to laugh tearfully. You see, I've, I've... Then, at sight of the braid lying over her shoulder, she put up her hands and gathered her hair into a knot. I'll take it, she said. Glad of that, answered the new settler cheerily, and with a glance at the handle of the dasher. I think that butter's come. It was just a week later when she rode south and took charge of the school. The day was full of joy and misgivings. She was happy when, with one of the new settler's babies before the chart, she could point out the very lines the Yankton man had shown her, and hear the little one striving to lisp and learn them. She was filled with doubts when, having dismissed a class, the pupils looked back at her from their seats, some mockingly, she thought, others with laughing eyes that challenged hers. But at four o'clock, when, at the top of the handbell, they cleared their desks and sat straight with folded arms, they seemed to have gotten over the novelty of her supervision and marched out with goodbyes as they passed the teacher's table, just as they had in former terms. She rode home, feeling that her work was well begun. The first six weeks of the term passed without incident. There had sprung up a complete understanding between her and the children, and her affection for them was returned with gratifying respect. Then, one Monday morning, there entered a disturbing element. A Polish woman, whose husband had moved his family down from Pierre to occupy the Irishman's shack, came to the school, bringing her son, a gawky, hangdog lad of twelve. While she recited a long account of his past experience with teachers and dictated her wishes as to his treatment by the little girl, he acted as interpreter. When she finally departed, with admonitions and sidewise wags of the head, he shuffled defiantly to a desk. He occupied his first hour in slyly flipping wet paper wads at a picture of Shakespeare pinned above him on the wall. The little girl, who was well versed in all school tricks from her years of sitting in a rear seat, knew what he was doing, but hesitated to speak to him. At last, seeing that he was attracting the attention of all the other children, she sent him to the blackboard to copy his spelling words ten times. By ingenious counting, he soon completed his work, and then began to draw pipe-stem men for the Dutchman's youngest to giggle at. He was sent back to his desk, where he spent the time in wiggling his ears. The little girl saw that trouble was before her, saw, too, that her position would be imperiled if she failed in her discipline. That night, when the biggest brother helped her to get supper and make the beds, she shared her fears with him. "'It's one thing to get a school,' she said sorrowfully, as he tried to comfort her. "'It's another to keep it.' But next day she called the pupils to order cheerfully. It was evident that the young Pole had been well discussed by the children. They watched him constantly to see what new prank he was preparing for their entertainment. He swaggered under their astonished gaze and insolently made requests out loud without raising his hand for permission to speak. Just before recess, upon chancing to glance his way, the little girl caught him tossing a note over to the other side of the room. 
She suddenly came to a halt beside his desk, and anger, strange and almost unreasonable, possessed her. It flashed into her mind that before her, ignorant, slouchy, indifferent, was one who, by his mischief, threatened to deprive her of what her mother and the biggest brother had long desired, but she herself yearned after with all the earnestness of her soul. She could scarcely refrain from attempting to send him off then and there. She trembled with indignation. Meeting her eyes for a moment, he saw a dangerous glint in them, and for the rest of the morning was more circumspect. But at noon, a full dinner, a lazy hour, and the ill-concealed admiration of the other children put him again into a mean mood. He got out of line in marching, and pulled the hair of one of the little fellows from the west fork. The little girl passed the afternoon with her eyes upon him. When he went so far that the school was interrupted, she walked toward him and gave him some task, or stayed beside his desk while she was hearing a class. But though in a measure it kept him in subjection, her power over the others, she found, was being woefully lessened, and her discipline destroyed. At dismissal she took up her hat and pail with a weariness that was not physical, but of the spirit, and rode home, bowed and silent. But, unknown to her, the Polish boy defeated his own evil ends that same evening, and solved to her satisfaction, and to that of the committee and of the scholars, the question of her rule. He was sent to the Swedes to inquire after a turkey that his mother had thought had strayed up the river and nested near the reservation road, and, in asking after the hen, he departed from his errand long enough to boast to the Swede boy of his fun at the schoolhouse. The latter listened to him eagerly, though quietly, grinning slyly once or twice during the story, and at the close of it remarked, with one finger on his nose, that he thought he had better go back to school again himself. The following morning, when she entered, to her surprise the little girl found him seated in the back of the room, his lunch in a newspaper beside him, his books in a strap at his feet. "'I come to learn again,' he said, and then waited until she assigned him a desk. He was so interested in the little girl that, for the first hour after school was called, he forgot to watch the young pole. Everywhere she moved he kept his eyes upon her. If she caught his glance, she saw in it only pride and encouragement, and was content. But the young pole, seeing that sweet boy did not look at him, became picked at last, and set about gaining not only the attention of the new pupil, but of the entire school. He rummaged his pockets for a bean-shooter, and finding one, proceeded to let the dry beans fly, snapping them loudly against the benches. The anger, resentment, and mortification of the little girl's face at his audacity made the sweet boy squirm in his seat. But he said nothing, seemed not to watch the bean-shooting, and bided his time. At last, interrupted in her teaching and goaded to the point of rebuke, the little girl dismissed a class, and rising in her chair, called the school to attention. "'I'm sorry to have to speak to anyone before the rest,' she said, her face white, her voice almost gone with excitement. "'But I must have order.' She looked straight at the young Pole. He scraped his feet and smirked at her, at the same time flipping a beam from between his thumb and finger. It struck the stove with a sharp ring that brought the sweet boy to his feet. His hand was raised to attract her attention. She nodded. The sweet boy lowered his arm very slowly, looking about him with an air of deprecation. "'I don't know,' he said in a low voice, "'if you think like me. Well, she,' he pointed to the little girl, "'comes, takes the skull, learns us. We beg Goot to pay her back.' He shifted until he stood over the young pole. "'See if somebody no bay goot,' he added, with a threatening tone in his voice. "'I make him!' Then he sank to his seat again, having for the second time in that schoolroom saved her from bitter humiliation. The next morning the schoolhouse withstood its last throw. At ten o'clock, in the midst of a reading lesson, there entered the young pole's father. His ox-cad was in his hand. He did not remove his hat, but strode forward to the teacher's desk, sputtering broken English. When he came near, he shook his empty fist so close to the little girl that she caught the scent of hay on it, for he had been throwing down feed to his cattle. "'No touch my flesh und blot!' he cried savagely. "'No touch my flesh und blot!' 
A half-recumbent figure in the rear, whose pale eyes rested upon her, gave the little girl courage. "'No one has been touched,' she replied. "'But if the school is made noisy by a pupil, then that pupil will be punished, or will leave.' The pole raised his gad with a grunt of rage. "'Eh!' he shouted, cursing in his own tongue. He nourished his arms and stamped up and down wildly. Of a sudden he saw the sweet boy, who had come forward and halted beside the table. His gaze fell before the pale, half-shut eyes. His voice lowered, and he ceased to swing his whip and swear. Then he hedged adroitly, speaking in broken English again and giving quick looks at the Swede boy's huge red hands that hung, clenched and twitching, on either side of his stalwart person. "'I have no trouble with you,' he said to the little girl, his manner changing to one of apology. "'But I let my boy myself,' and he moved down the aisle and disappeared through the door. His son gazed after him in amazement and disgust, gave a sniff of contempt, and replied to the triumphant look on the little girl's face by extracting his geography and going to work. He played his pranks no more, and the term passed peacefully, under the mental guidance of the little girl and the physical overlordship of the Swede boy. On the afternoon of the last day of school, when her pupils had said their goodbyes and were straying homeward laden with their books and slates, the little girl stayed behind, and sitting in the very place to which in former years she had raised reverent eyes, she looked round the building, every crack and corner of which had its memory. On the bench by the door, close beside the leaky water-bucket, was the same battered, greasy basin in which the neighbor woman's daughter had placed a horse-hair one day, doubtly maintaining that in due time the hair would miraculously turn into a worm. The broken pointer reminded her of a certain fierce encounter when, having confided to one of the Dutchman's seven that on the previous Sunday the farmhouse had partaken of a dish of canned frog's legs, she had been hailed in return as Miss Chinaman, and the teacher had closed the event by routing her tormentors. She thought of the morning the Dutch children first came in leather shoes, an occasion recalled by the pencil marks behind the chart, where she had stood her punishment for too much smiling. The stove-poker brought back the terrible moment she had dared to put her tongue against it in the icy schoolroom, and had had to sit with the iron cleaving to her until the teacher warmed some water. The peg above the coal-bins reminded her of the winter day when she took down the well-rope and tied it to the faithful Luffrey's collar, so that, with his keener, finer instinct for direction, he could lead teacher and pupils through the blizzard to the safety of the farmhouse. She was suddenly awakened from her daydreams by the sound of galloping. A horseman was approaching from the direction of the farmhouse, and she hurried to the door to see who it could be. As he came near, she ran out joyfully to meet him. It was the colonel's son. "'They told me you were here,' he cried, springing from his saddle. She could scarcely answer him for sheer happiness, and when he brought her mount and they started away through the twilight, he leading the horses, she walked beside him silently. He told her about his trip, his months in the preparatory school, his new friends, the wonders of the big city in which he had been living, hardly taking a breath in his excitement as his narrative swept along. Suddenly he became quiet and bent toward her, anxiously, penitently. "'Go on,' she urged. "'It's fine. But I've forgotten to ask you how you've been and what you've been doing, or whether next year—of course I wish awfully that you could.' He faltered, stopped, then after a moment. "'But you're as brave as can be just to go right on at this school and let your teacher help you all you can.' It'll all count, you'll find, when you start in studying some place else. She laughed merrily. You haven't heard, she said. Even in the dusk, he could see that her face was beaming. Heard what? he asked. That I've been going to school, but not in the way you think. He halted in the road. What do you mean? I've been teaching. It was a long way from the school to the farmhouse, yet the colonel's son and the little girl had so much to tell each other that they were not done even when the lane was reached. So they paused in its gloom, under the budding ash-boughs. A red-breasted thrush, just returning to his old haunts, twittered inquiringly at them from a twig above, 
and the horses nickered and champed on their bits, but they heard only each other until, having lighted the lamp in the sitting-room, the biggest brother strolled toward them, singing a gay love-song. End of The Little Teacher